0: Is that it? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of November's book The Castle by Kafka translated by J.A. Underwood. So each month I take a book I've never read, I split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas that I've noticed so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas on future episodes so please leave a comment or start a conversation below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshuk. So this episode is all about the second half of the castle from page 136 chapter 14 Frieda's reproach all the way to the end. So we start off with the schoolmaster who's bossing Kay around, but Kay doesn't really complain too much because he knows that he's given Frida a, quote, measure of security. Frida complains that Kay only took her as a lover to get to clam. The landlady told her, quote, it was the product, she said, of your thinking that in me you'd conquered a sweetheart of clams and so held a pledge redeemable only at the highest price. Frida complains that when he learns the truth of Clam, she will end up being a mere possession. Now, I already mentioned in the first podcast that we have many females in bondage in the book. More on that later. She says, quote, you're still wanting constantly to reach Clam was simply an impotent striving somehow to placate him. His guilt of taking her as a lover, no doubt. Now, Kay makes his intentions clear, quote, You know I want to reach Clam. You also know you can't help me in this, so I must manage it on my own. Frida redirects the thrust of the plot by saying, quote, Clam isn't even your goal anymore. That's perhaps what bothers me most. It was bad enough having you constantly pushing past me towards Clam. Seeing you now appear to give up on Clam is much worse. It's something not even the landlady foresaw. According to the landlady, my happiness a dubious but very real happiness would end the day you finally recognise that your hopes of Clam were in vain. Now you're not even waiting for that day. Long comes a small boy and you join battle with him over his mother as if you were fighting for your very life. Now the plot here is saving Hans's mother. Kay needs to save Hans' mother. Do you remember the schoolboy who appeared right at the end of part one? So maybe this is going to be Kay's new mission. We've moved from seeking out a non-tangible, mythic, bureaucratic figure to a very tangible, although as yet unmet, ailing mother. The chapter ends with Kay going off into the snow to find Clam while an assistant is drawn towards Frida, looking out of a window. I think Frida may be having an affair with an assistant. Dun, dun, dun. Now Kay goes to find Barnabas at his sister's house, But he's not there, his sister Amalia is, who tells him that Olga is in love with him. But I get the feeling that Amalia might also be in love with Kay. Barnabas does not appear and Kay leaves. Now, Olga talks of the difficulty Barnabas has as a messenger. She comments on how Clam's appearance changes, quote, apparently he looks quite different when he arrives in the village and different when he leaves it. Different before he's been drinking beer, different afterwards, different awake, different asleep, different alone, different in conversation and, understandably after all this, almost totally different up in the castle. Olga goes on to describe how her father and a man called Sortini, not Sordini with a D, who is was an official, were firemen and rescued a man called Galata from a fire that broke out in the Count's arms a few years back. She describes how Sortini wrote a letter to her sister, Amalia, requesting her to see him. Not a letter of love, but a letter of lust. Amalia gives Olga the letter to read. Quote, I knelt beside her and read the letter. I'd just finished when Amalia, after a quick glance at me, raised it to her eyes again, but could no longer bring herself to read it, tore it up, threw the pieces at the man outside, the messenger, hitting him in the face and closed the window. That was the crucial morning. She goes on to describe the letter, quote, The letter was from Sortini addressed to the girl with the garnet necklace. Now, Olga had just given Amalia a garnet necklace. I can't give you the exact wording. It was a request that Amalia come to him at the Count's Arms immediately because in half an hour, Sortini had to leave. The letter was written in the most vulgar language using expressions I'd never come across before and only half guessed at from the context. She goes on, Sortini was clearly angry that the sight of Amalia had so stirred him, keeping him from his business. And Kay thinks, quote, that's what the officials are like, abusing their power and office of authority. Olga goes on to compare Frida and Clam with Sortini and Amalia. And Kay says it's an entirely different situation and that Frida loved Clam. I suspect not, perhaps. Olga talks of the clashes between the classes, quote, Another thing you need to bear in mind is that between an official and a shoemaker's daughter, there's a big gap that must somehow be bridged. Sortini tried to do it this way. Another man might go about it differently. I know they say we all belong to the castle and there is no gap and nothing to be bridged. And it may well be true in the normal course of events, but we unfortunately have had occasion to see that just when it matters, it's not true at all. Olga describes how there is a certain amount of competition between the village girls. They mostly seem to be competing for the attention of the menfolk. She also describes the competition between the Castle Fire Brigade and the Village Fire Brigade. She explains how her father was fired from the fire service over the Sortini Amalia incident. And I'm thinking what horrific corruption that allows a working man to be left destitute like this. Now Amalia enters and hears the talking. She says, quote, You two still sitting together And you meant to leave immediately, Kay, and now it's almost ten. Can you even be bothered with such stories? There are people here who feed off stories like that. They sit down together the way you two are sitting here and regale each other with them. You don't strike me as one of those people, though. Oh, I am, said Kay. That's just what I am. One of them, whereas people who can't be bothered with such stories and leave it to others, they don't impress me very much. Amalia leaves and Kay says of her, quote, She's the youngest and as such should be dismissive. Guilty or not, it was she who brought disaster on the family instead of, with each new day, begging forgiveness from each of you afresh. She holds her head up higher than anyone. Now I'm thinking, it was Sortini that brought disaster on the family, not Amalia. I'm not sure I like this sexist pigeonholing character, Kay. Anyway, he goes on to describe Amalia, quote, Look, you're very alike, all three of you, but the thing that distinguishes her from both of you is very much to her disadvantage. The first time I saw her, I was put off by the dull, unloving look in her eye. And then she may be the youngest, but nothing of that shows in her appearance. She has that ageless look of women who scarcely age at all, but who are also never really young. You see her every day, you don't even notice the hardness in her face. That's why, come to think of it, I can't take Sortini's sudden liking very seriously either. Maybe he only meant to punish her with the letter, not summon her. I don't want to talk about Sortini, said Olga. With the castle gentlemen, anything's possible, whether it's the most beautiful or the ugliest girl involved. More sexism and objectification from K. The translation of the castle is also the lock. It is very much about Kay trying desperately to penetrate the castle walls. But more importantly, on a metaphorical level, it is about other men trying to gain access to women, men such as Sortini, trying to gain access to people such as Amalia. Amalia has put down a physical lock to him and now her and her family are being punished. The village is ostracizing them and the father has lost his only means of employment. In contrast, we have the Frida character who let Clam have access to her. Let's see how these two strands, Frida and Amalia, develop. Now, the poverty and ostracism that befalls the family due to Amalia's rejecting Swartini's letter is described by Olga. It is heartbreaking. Their father tries to obtain a pardon from the castle, but as Olga puts it, quote, "'What could he be pardoned for?' At most for the fact that he was now pestering the authorities to no purpose, but precisely that was unpardonable. She goes on, but to obtain a pardon, he first had to establish guilt and up in the offices that was being denied him. He conceived the idea, and this showed he was already not all there mentally, that the guilt was being kept secret from him because he was not paying enough. Up until then, you see, he'd always paid only the fixed charges, which were steep enough at least for our circumstances. Now he felt he must pay more, which was surely wrong, because with our authorities, although they do, for simplicity's sake, to avoid pointless discussion, take bribes, nothing can be achieved that way. But if that was what father hoped, we didn't want to spoil it for him. We sold what we still had, virtually only essentials were left to fund father's inquiries. And for a long time, we had the daily satisfaction of knowing that when father set out each morning, He always at least had a few coins in his pocket to jingle. We starved all day, of course, while the only additional thing we achieved by raising the money was that father was sustained in the state of some optimism. What a tragic state of affairs, to try and gain pardon for some intangible fault, a fault that is a fabrication of the imagination. Just as an aside, can you remember when the book told us that Kay's plans were to help Hans' mother? What's happened to that idea? Will it return? Or is it just another example of Kafka playing with our expectations? Discuss. Now, Olga explains that, quote, the odd clerk would at least try to look as if he was doing something. He'd promise inquiries, hint that certain leads had in fact been traced, that they would follow up, not because they were obliged to, but purely for father's sake. And he, instead of growing more skeptical, became increasingly credulous. The father is fighting against an imaginary lock, He reminds me a little bit of the Fritz Perkler character in Gravity's Rainbow if you've read that book. He's constantly trying to work hard on the rocket program for the futile reason to see his daughter Ilza, or perhaps make her safer. Now Olga describes how her father was going to stand by the road to petition an official from the castle to give him a pardon but the problem is they drive too fast. She describes how her father became so weak and ill standing in the autumnal cold to try and get a pardon that he became seriously ill and was unable to leave bed for weeks. She plans, Olga, to placate the messenger of Sortini's letter. Quote, well, I thought to myself, If public opinion, even if only seemingly, is aware only of the insults of the messenger, everything might be put right again, even if only seemingly, if the messenger could be placated. After all, no report has been filed, so we're told, so no department has the matter in hand as yet. It's therefore still open to the messenger so far as he personally is concerned. And that's all we're talking about here, to forgive and forget. Olga describes how she went to the Count's arms to try to find him. She tries to prevent many of the servants, all without success. Quote, We haven't found the messenger we're looking for yet. He's still in Sortini's service, apparently. Sortini thinks very highly of him, and he went with Sortini when he withdrew to more remote offices. Most of the servants haven't seen him any more recently than we did, and when one of them does claim to have seen him in the meantime, it's probably in error. She goes on, I do know lots of servants now, the servants of virtually all the gentlemen who have visited the village in recent years. And if I do ever get into the castle, I'll not be a stranger there. This castle is truly a lock, many years of effort, and she's not able to penetrate its secrets and its fortifications. Now, since the plan to gain favour by befriending the servants of the castle is not working, she plans to find employment for her brother Barnabas in the castle. Quote, We'd insulted one messenger and driven him from the front offices. What better idea than to offer a fresh messenger in the person of Barnabas, have Barnabas do the work of the insulted messenger and so make it possible for the insulted one to stay away for as long as he wanted, for as long as he needed to get over the insult. And this leads us to the present. Olga describes how Barnabas delivered a message to the land surveyor that appeared. So it's gone full circle. She goes on describing her brother's excitement at the first ever messenger job. Quote, it was as if a whole new world had suddenly opened up before him and he couldn't stand the happiness and cares of so much novelty. Yet all that happened to him was that he'd been given a letter to deliver to you. But of course, it was the first letter, the first job he'd ever been given. Such a role reversal. At first, I thought that Barnabas was the boss of Kay it transpires that he is wholly dependent on Kay. Listen to Olga's description of his work. Quote, "'Those two letters that have so far passed "'through Barnabas' hands are the first sign of forgiveness, "'dubious though it is, "'that our family has received for three years. "'This change, if it is a change and not an illusion, "'illusions are more common than changes, "'is connected with your arrival here. "'Our fate has to some extent become dependent on you. "'Possibly these two letters are just the start, and Barnabas' activities will expand beyond the messenger work concerning you. Let's hope so, as long as we're allowed to, but for the time being, everything that's directed at you. Up there, we have to be content with what we're given, but down here, it may be that we can also do something ourselves, namely secure your goodwill, or at least guard against your aversion, or most importantly, protect you to the best of our ability and experience in order to keep your contact with the castle, which might mean our livelihood from being lost. Now, one of Kay's assistants turns up at Olga's house and it takes her and Amalia to push him out. Kay keeps hidden from the assistant and Olga. Quote, Kay then learned from Olga that the visit had concerned him. It had been one of the assistants looking for him on Frieda's orders. Olga had wanted to protect Kay from the assistant. If Kay meant to own up to Frieda subsequently about his visit there, let him do so, but it shouldn't be discovered by the assistants. Now, Kay turns down the offer of staying for the night and asks for a whip and is given a willow branch. Is he going to beat an assistant? Maybe Frieda? He catches up with the assistant who says that they, that's Arthur and Jeremiah, who were sent to work for him by Galater, were, quote, standing in for clam at the time. Arthur has gone back to the castle because he was unhappy working with Kay. He's going to complain that Kay has, quote, no sense of humour. Now, these assistants are becoming unlocked in my mind. They're making more sense now. They were sent as quiet companions to aid Kay by Galata. Now that Jeremiah is free from Kay's employ, he says he's now allowed to talk openly about his and Arthur's feelings and emotions. For example, quote, "'Your ruthlessness in letting us get so cold out by the railings or the way you treated Arthur, who someone an angry word will pain for days almost striking him dead on that mattress with your fist, or the way you chased me up and down through the snow this afternoon. He says that Frida has gone back to being a bar lady now that he has, quote, betrayed her by going to Barnabas's girls, and that he, Jeremiah, is a room waiter at the Count's castle. Now the next chapter doesn't have a heading, it's just a number. Sometimes there are chapter headings, sometimes not. It's an interesting inconsistency in the novel. If you know why, I would love to know, put a comment below. Now, Kay believes Jeremiah has tricked Frida into becoming his lover by telling her that he is having a dalliance with Olga and Amelia. Jeremiah says, quote, if Frida constantly pleads with me to free her from you, why should I not do her that favor, particularly since I'm doing you no harm in the process, now that you've consoled yourself with the Barnabas' girls? Kay retorts with, quote, now I can see you're afraid, really pitifully afraid. You're trying to catch me out with lies. Frida asked for one thing only, to be delivered from those by now maddened, lascivious dogs of assistance. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to carry out her request in full and am faced with the consequences of my failure. Now, will Kay rescue Frida from Jeremiah? Does she want rescuing? At that very moment, Kay bumps into Barnabas, who says that he appealed to Clam for a request to see Kay up at the castle, but was unsuccessful. However, a small elderly secretary called Erlanger appeared to him up at the castle. He was one of Clam's first secretaries. He has told Barnabas to tell Kay to meet him at room 15 of the Count's Arms. Erlanger says to Barnabas, quote, He should come right away. I have only a few appointments there and I'll be driving back at five in the morning. Tell him I'm very keen to have a word with him. Now, Jeremiah, hearing this, races away to the Count's Arms to, quote, try to beat him to Erlanger. Mm. And when he gets there, he pretends he's a room waiter, perhaps to spy on the conversation. Now Kay is invited into the Count's Arms and waits there for the Erlanger meeting. He bumps into Frieda, who's working as a bar lady now. She reprimands him for being unfaithful with Barnabas's girls and says, quote, there'll be no wedding. He tries to put her right and explains that he has not been unfaithful, that the reason he was at Barnabas's girls was to see if Barnabas, quote, who should have brought an important message long ago, had finally come. He hadn't, but soon would, I was credibly assured, very soon. I was reluctant to have him come on to me at school, wanting to avoid bothering you with his presence. Hours went by, and unfortunately, he didn't come. Someone else did, though someone I detest, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. I didn't feel like having him spy on me so I went through the next door garden but nor did I wish to hide from him. Instead I went straight up to him on the street though with, I admit, a nice bendy willow rod. That's all, so there's nothing further to be said about. But he does ultimately go on to ask her about her relationship with the assistants. She explains how she started an affair with her old friend Jeremiah who was free once out of Kay's employ. Quote, and this is Frida speaking. I was drawn to him. He's my playmate from childhood. We used to play together on the slopes of the Castle Hill. Marvellous times. You've never asked me about my past, but none of that mattered so long as Jeremiah was restrained by his position. I knew my duty as your wife-to-be, but then you drove the assistants off. She goes on. On duty, he's afraid if his master twitches an eyebrow. Off duty, he's afraid of nothing. He came and took me, abandoned by you, dominated by him, my old friend. I couldn't help myself. I didn't unlock the school door. He smashed the window and pulled me out. We fled here. The landlord thinks highly of him. And what better for the guest than to have such a room waiter? So we were taken on. He's not living with me, but we share a room. Now, Kate is thankful the engagement didn't work out, having her, quote, Fidelity due only to the assistant's obligation to us as our servants, then it was good that everything came to an end. It would hardly have been a happy marriage between two beasts of prey only whipping could tame. In which case, I'm also grateful to the family that unintentionally contributed towards splitting us up. Jeremiah appears looking dishevelled, and Frida asks Kay to leave Go to your girls, why don't you, dressed only in their chemises, so I'm told. Of course, that's what she's been told, more of Jeremiah's lies. Now she and Kay disappear off into a room somewhere in the Count's arms. Quote, Frida, who did not even turn to face Kay again, finally pulled Jeremiah away. A small door could be seen down below, even lower than the doors in the passage. Not just Jeremiah, even Frida had to stoop to enter. Inside it looked bright and warm, Whispering was heard for a while, no doubt tender persuasions to get Jeremiah into bed. Then the door was shut. Now, in my head, with all these doors and passages, the Count's arms has turned into some dreamlike Isha drawing. And so Frida resumes her affair with Jeremiah. Now, talking of Isha, he goes to find Erlanger's room and is confronted with more Isha like architecture. Quote, All the doors were identical. Continuing the quote, He gave one more look to right and left along the passage. Someone might be coming who could tell him what he needed to know and remove the need for any risk. But the long passage was silent and empty. Next, Kay listened at the door. Not a sound there either. He knocked softly enough not to wake anyone who might have been asleep. And when even then nothing happened, he very carefully opened the door. How come it's not locked, I'm thinking. Anyway, continue on. Here though, a shriek greeted him. It was a small room. More than half occupied by a wide bed. The lamp on the bedside table was switched on. Beside it stood a small traveling bag. In the bed, but completely hidden under the quilt, someone shifted uneasily and whispered through a gap between quilt and sheet. Who is it? Now this poor man called Burgle, who has been woken by Kay, asks whether Kay knows Friedrich, since that is his master. And Burgle is Friedrich's secretary. Is the implication here a master-servant relationship? It does seem to be that in this world of Kafka's, the secretary figure is usually enslaved to the master. What do you think? Now, Burgle explains why there are no locks on the doors. Quote, According to an old saying, secretary's doors should always be open. He goes on to say how he is a link secretary. Quote, I'm the strongest link between Friedrich and the village. I'm the link between his castle and village secretaries. And I'm thinking, what insane bureaucracy, how many levels are needed? And it's interesting how all these bureaucratic figures don't seem to achieve any real work. And as if to hammer home my point, when asked what land surveying is like by Bergel, Kay says, quote, I'm not working as a land surveyor. And Bergel responds with, quote, that's amazing. You're a land surveyor and have no land surveying work. Welcome to the world of Kafka. Burgle is outraged and offers quote to take this matter further in order to find Kay employment. He soon sends Kay to sleep with a long monotonous speech about the problems that secretaries have by having to do village examinations at night time. Here is a flavour quote the party extorts sacrifices from us in the night like the robber in the forest. Sacrifices would never be capable of normally. All right That's how it is then. When the party's still there, still giving us strength and coercing us and egging us on and everything. is still progressing half unconsciously, but how will it be afterwards when it's over? The satisfied, carefree party has left us. And there we stand alone, defenseless in the face of our misuse of office. That doesn't bear thinking about, and yet we're happy. How suicidal happiness can be. I mean, we could make an effort to conceal the true situation from the party. He's hardly going to notice anything on his own. He probably thinks he's just somehow, never mind how, found his way exhausted, disappointed, reckless and apathetic from exhaustion and disappointment into a different room from the one he's wanted. He's sitting there unsuspecting, busy thinking, if he's busy at all, about his mistake or about how tired he is. Couldn't one just leave him to it no, it's impossible. With the garrulousness of the happy man, one must explain everything to him. One must show him in detail, with no chance of sparing oneself, what has happened and the reasons why it has happened. What an exceptionally unusual and uniquely great opportunity this is. One must show how, having stumbled upon this opportunity, with all the helplessness of which no other creature, only a party is capable. He can now, if he wishes, Mr. Lancever, sir, control everything. All he need do is somehow make his request, the granting of which is already prepared, is in fact reaching out towards him. All those things must be shown. It's the official's hour of trial. But when one's managed that too, sir, then the essential has been done. One must be content to wait. That was all Kay heard. He was asleep, cut off from everything that was happening. I'm asleep too. You can tell Kafka worked in an office and was used to this very technical language. So Kay slips in and out of sleep whilst Bruegel goes on in this monotonous fashion about the technicalities of secretarial strife. There's a knock at the door and it's Erlanger. He explains that clam is upset that Frida is not serving his beer anymore. Now is that a euphemism? And it's now Kay's job to see that Frida is reinstated. He says, quote, you live with her I'm told, so see to it that she returns immediately. Personal feelings cannot be considered here. That goes without saying, so I'll not get involved in any further discussion of the matter. I'm already doing far more than I need by pointing out that if you prove yourself in this small thing, it may be useful to you sometime as regards your making progress. That's all I have to say to you. Kay reflects on how he is dismissed and how he is impotent to refuse the order. Quote, Sometimes orders were issued here that were very easy to comply with, yet such ease gave Kay no joy, not only because the order concerned Frida, and though meant as an order sounded to Kay like a jive, but above all, because it offered Kay a glimpse of the futility of all his endeavors. The orders were issued over his head, the unfavorable ones as well as the favorable, and even the favorable ones, no doubt, had an ultimately unfavorable core. At any rate, they were all issued over his head and he was far too lowly to be able to intervene in them, let alone silence them and make his own voice heard. If Erlanger waves you aside, what are you going to do? And if he didn't wave you aside, what could you tell him? Poor Kay, completely unable to carve his own destiny, fighting against bureaucracy. There ensues what can only be described as file warfare, where we see streams of servants battling over files. It sounds like mayhem. Quote, One servant was busy pacifying an impatient gentleman, the other fighting outside the closed door for the return of the files. Both had problems. The impatient gentleman often became even more impatient as a result of the pacification attempts, incapable of listening to the servant's empty words anymore. He did not want consolation. He wanted files. One such gentleman, using the gap above the door, emptied a whole wash basin over the servant. You get the idea. Very Monty Python, where there's the battles with the office. He notices that Burgle does not seem to be receiving files from any of these secretaries. He notices, and Kay notices a file, quote, actually only a scrap of paper and wonders whether it could be his file, but the secretary rips it up, probably in an expression of agitation, thinks Kay. Now this weird nocturnal activity by the secretaries reminds me of the nocturnal work of blood sucking vampires. Listen to this, quote, nighttime examinations have the sole object of allowing parties, the sight of whom the gentleman would have found quite intolerable by day to be heard swiftly at night under artificial light with a chance, as soon as the examination was over, of forgetting all nastiness in sleep. But Kay's behaviour, he was told, had made a mockery of all precautions. Even ghosts disappear towards morning, but Kay had remained there, hands in pockets. This is why the gentlemen did not leave their rooms, because of Kay's presence, and he is going to be punished for this. Quote, It was because of him, simply and solely because of him, that the gentlemen had been unable to emerge from their rooms. Because in the morning, having just woken up, they were too ashamed, too vulnerable to be able to expose themselves to strange eyes. They literally, no matter that they were fully dressed, felt too naked to show themselves. It was difficult to say why they were ashamed. It could be that they were ashamed, those perpetual workers, merely of having slept But perhaps even more than of showing themselves they were shy of seeing other people. The thing they had happily avoided with the aid of nighttime examinations, namely the sight of parties whom they found so hard to bear, they were reluctant to have now, in the morning, suddenly, unexpectedly, and large as life, intrude on them anew. They were simply not up to it. What sort of person would fail to respect that? Well, it had to be someone like Kay. It goes on. K would certainly have to answer for what he had done here. Poor K, what will his punishment be? I have no idea, possibly banishment. It's all very weird, it's like a surreal dream. Now, at this point, Pepe throws him a cushion and K falls fast asleep in a room. When he wakes, he realises he's slept all day. Frida is to, quote, resume her old job in the evening. And Pepe says, quote, she doesn't care for you anymore, presumably. Pepe asked as she brought coffee and cakes. However, she no longer asked maliciously as before, but sadly, as if in the meantime, she had come to know the malice of the world, beside which all personal malice collapses and becomes futile. She spoke to Kay as if to a fellow sufferer. Wow, Pepe has grown up quickly. She reflects that she loves Kay and that Frida could have only been removed from the Count's arms by love in order for Pepe to be noticed and gain promotion. There's a lengthy section on the role of the chambermaids who serve the gentleman in the Count's arms. They're very subservient and it's a very patriarchal hierarchy. The third-person narrator tells of how Frida compares herself to Peppy at nights and cries with despair because she's not as beautiful. Quote, no one was more aware than Frida herself of how wretched she looked. For instance, the first time you saw her let down her head, you clapped your hands together in sympathy. By rights, such a girl shouldn't even get to be a chambermaid she knew it too, and many a night she had cried over it, clinging to Peppy and draping Peppy's hair around her own head. But when she was at work, all doubts disappeared. She thought of herself as the loveliest girl in the world and knew just how to plant the idea in every head. Frida, by attaching herself to the man Clam, makes herself almost, quote, too beautiful. Quote, But what was good enough for Clam was bound surely to be admired by everyone else, so that in no time at all, Frieda had become a great beauty, just the kind of girl the bar needed, almost too beautiful, actually, too powerful. The bar was now scarcely enough for her. Indeed, it struck people as remarkable that she was still in the bar. Being a barmaid was a big thing. It made the connection with Clam seem very plausible. But once the barmaid was Clam's mistress, why did he leave her? And for so long, too, in the bar, why didn't he raise her higher? In this society, quite clearly, women seem to be defined by the men around them. And now we have the real reason that Frida got into a relationship with Kay. Quote, damn it, be Clam's mistress, the people think. But if you are, we want to see it in your promotion too. However, she doesn't get any promotion. She feels she needs to act. The narration goes on, quote, Frida had decided to create a scandal. She, Clam's mistress, would throw herself at just anyone, if possible, the lowest of the low. That would cause a stir, that would be something people talked about for a long time and eventually, eventually, they would remember what it meant to be Clam's mistress and what it meant to discard that honor in the ecstasy of a fresh love. The only problem had been finding the right man to play this clever game with. It couldn't be anyone Frida knew. And so Kay was chosen. All this intrigue is finally unlocked right at the end of the novel. Kay was merely a pawn in Frida's master plan, all caused by the elusive, silent and pretty much unseen Clam, just like the shut up crustacean he's named after. Now, it's described how Peppy is prepared sartorially for presentation to Clam. A lot of work goes into her dress from all the other maids. It's also described how manipulative and cunning Frieda had been when Kay had taken her to the schoolhouse. Quote, she one eye on the Count's arms and the other on Kay. She'd had excellent messengers available, Kay's assistants, whom he left entirely to her. She had dispatched them to her old friends, reminded them of her existence, complained of being held prisoner by such a man as Kay, stirred up feeling against Pepe, announced her imminent arrival, asked for help, implored them to give nothing away to Clam, acted as if Clam needed to be protected and must therefore on no account be allowed down to the bar. Continuing on. But the assistants had provided more than just this messenger service. They had also served to make Kay jealous, keep him interested. So the so-called love between the assistants and Kay was just to keep him on his toes. Who'd have thought it, eh? Not so innocent Frida. Interesting how the narrator is unlocking this information now right at the end of the novel. Quote, Kay had done everything to please Frieda, even the most contradictory things. He allowed the assistants to make him jealous, but at the same time tolerated the three of them remaining together while he went off roaming by himself. It was almost as if he'd been Frieda's third assistant. At this point, Frieda had finally, on the basis of her observations, decided on her big move. She would make a comeback, and it really was high time. It was marvelous how Frieda, in her cunning, had seen that and exploited it. This power of watching and coming to a decision was Frida's inimitable skill. Had Peppy possessed it, how differently her life would have turned out. If Frida had remained in the school for another day or two, there'd have been no driving Peppy out. She'd have been barmaid for good, university loved and in demand. She'd have earned enough money to make dazzling additions to her meager get-up. Another day or two and no amount of intrigue would have kept Clam away from the lounge any longer. He'd have come down, had a drink, felt at ease, and if he noticed Frida's absence at all, been highly satisfied with the change. Another day or two, and Frida and her scandal, her connections, the assistance, the whole lot would have been utterly and completely forgotten, never to reemerge. Kay is completely in the dark about all these shenanigans. When he chats to Peppy, he says, quote, I can't explain why Frida left me. The most likely explanation seems namely that I neglected her. Peppy suggests that Kay can live with her and the maids at the Count's Arms. She's happy to go back to being a maid and reflects that her emotion was a negative experience. Quote, when I think about my friends, I almost don't mind going back. Why should I be promoted above them? That was the very thing that kept us together. The fact that the future was barred to all three of us identically. And then I did, in fact, break through and was separated from them. Now that's a really interesting comment on the idea of promotion and how getting on can have negative consequences. We don't know whether Kay takes up the offer of living with Pepe and her friends at the Count's Arms. The landlady makes an appearance and berates Kay for criticising her outmoded dress sense. She finally pushes Kay for comments and he says, quote, You really want to know? Well, they're made of fine material, very sumptuous, but they're outmoded, ornate, often over elaborate, shabby, and they suit neither your age, nor your figure, nor your position. Now I'm thinking Kay should really keep his thoughts to himself quite honestly. Notice how he hasn't criticized any of the male modes address. dress. He wants to pigeonhole her as the crone figure and put her in a box, discuss. Anyway, the novel ends with Gerstacker, the coachman who thinks Kay will help him get somewhere with Erlanger. Kay laughs at this idea. Kay has never got somewhere with any official. Gerstacker leads him to his house and meets his mother. Quote, The living room of Gerstacker's cottage was lit only dimly by the fire in the stove and a stump of candle, by the light of which someone sat hunched in a corner under the crooked rafters that protruded there. Reading a book, it was Gerstacker's mother. She held a trembling hand out to Kay and made him sit down beside her. She spoke with an effort. It was an effort to understand her, but what she said. And there, the novel floats to an end, with no full stop, as if this craziness will just continue. Franz Kafka, the castle. So, what were those questions and were they answered? Why doesn't he just leave? Well, he became more entrapped by Frieda and he was on a crusade to try to penetrate the castle hence his desire I guess to stay and then we had that question will she stay faithful to Kay well she didn't he accused her of over familiarity with his distance, and she did trick Kay into loving her more and more to make her more important in the village and to make Clam more and more attracted to her did Clam make any kind of appearance no he didn't so overall thoughts of the book to me it's about how the power of a bureaucracy or a government can really take over and drain its people of any will to action to create an environment full of supposed action which I guess fails in any way to produce any desired result. Kay was not able to do any land surveying and his attempts to communicate effectively with anyone in authority were unsuccessful although he did of course survey the land, he walked through the snow from the Count's arms to the castle gates around. But he had no ability to communicate with pretty much anyone in authority. Frieda had to be incredibly manipulative and emotionally lie in order to maintain any sort of power in the novel. And this power derived from one man and the man was clam. The novel also, to me, expresses the idea that a goal-oriented plot is not the only way of making a novel perhaps inspired by the meaningless of World War One. What did the book mean to you? I'm looking forward to reading some of your thoughts. Now, would I recommend this book to a friend? I can't think of anyone I would rush out to recommend it to. It seems a bit dated. Some of the ideas regarding the role of women in society are dated, although perhaps relevant at the time. In exposing hypocrisy, it seems a little old hat. I'm sure the book was a groundbreaker at the time but it seems more like a very interesting museum piece now. So if you were to ask me, is it like it, love it, or not for me, I'd probably say the book is not for me. I did enjoy experiencing the awful bureaucratic system that Kay was trying to operate in, but personally, I prefer much more rich and beautiful language. Anyway, there were some really interesting ideas to come out of the novel, the idea of possession. Frida feels like a possession. And listen to this quote. And if all else fails, then on behalf of the K's husband and wife, you'll simply beg. But when afterwards this was the landlady's conclusion, you realise that you've been wrong about everything, about your assumptions and your hopes, in your conception of Clam and his relations with me. That's when my hell will begin, because that's when I really shall be the only possession left for you to depend on, but a possession that you at the same time has proved worthless and that you'll treat accordingly because you've no other feelings for me than that of an owner. She argues that she's merely a vessel to get to Clam. That is the value and love of the relationship possession. I mentioned that there is a lack of plot. There are elements of plot though. So, for example, Kay clearly wants to find Clam. That's a plot and we're eager to join him on that journey. We're pretty sure that he won't find him, but he makes his intentions clear when he gets chatting to Frida, quote, You know I want to reach Clam, you also know you can't help me in this so I must manage it on my own. That's on page 141. And Frida redirects the thrust of the plot by saying, quote, Clam isn't even your goal anymore, that's perhaps what bothers me most. It was bad enough having you constantly pushing past me towards Clam. Seeing you now appear to give up on Clam is much worse. It's something not even the landlady foresaw. According to the landlady, my happiness, a dubious but very real happiness, would end the day you finally recognised that your hopes of Clam were in vain. Now you're not even waiting for that day. Along comes a small boy and you join battle with him over his mother as if you were fighting for your very life. So the plot changed to saving Hans's mother, but it was completely discarded, that plot idea. We continue the idea in the second half of Females in Bondage. Olga says of Clam on page 176, quote, Clam is like a commanding officer with women, ordering this one or that one to come to him, not tolerating any of them for long, and as he orders their coming, also ordering them to go. Then we also have Frida by attaching herself to the man Clam. She makes herself almost, quote, too beautiful, quote, but what was good enough for Clam was bound surely to be admired by everyone else, so that in no time at all Frida had become a great beauty, just the kind of girl the bar needed, almost too beautiful. In this society, Frida's beauty is defined and moulded by the men around her. And the maids in the Count's arm are almost imprisoned, listen to this, quote, this is page 260, quote, then the maids climbed out of bed, the beds were one above the other, there was very little space anywhere, the whole maid's room was actually nothing but a big closet with three shelves. Now it's interesting, these three ages of women, we have Pepe, the new love of Clam, Frida, the old or marriageable age, and the landlady, who used to be Clam's mistress way in the past. It reminds me of the idea of the triple goddess, the maiden, Peppy, the mother, if not quite a mother yet, Frida, and the crone, the landlady. Now, this triple goddess or deity archetype was very popular in many neo-pagan religious and spiritual traditions. We also have more sexism in the book and general assumptions. Quote, there's a saying here, perhaps you know it, official decisions have the shyness of young girls. That's a good observation, page 155. And then Olga criticizes herself. She says, quote, as a girl, not being able to understand it as well as Barnabas. And Kay says, Olga has, quote, womanish timidity. And Olga says, quote, I didn't have my father's grand plans. I didn't have that determination men have. Quite sexist thinking there. I think. The idea of the lock is interesting. The book did begin to make a little bit of sense. The translation of the castle is also the lock. It's very much about Kay trying to penetrate these castle walls, as I mentioned, but more importantly, on a metaphorical level, it's about other men trying to gain access to women. Men, such as Sortini, you remember, he's trying to gain access to Amelia, and Amelia puts down a physical lock to him, and now, because of that, She's being punished, her and her family, the village is ostracizing him, and the father has lost his only means of employment. And in contrast, we have the Frida character who let Clam have access to her. And it's interesting how these two threads went through the novel. Kay is also locked into that worldview of women as submissive and objects, as I just mentioned. The idea of Isha and an Isha-esque world is very interesting. After his meeting with Erlanger in the Count's arms, remember, quote, there was a whirring in the passage from doors being opened and closed. Kay also saw in the gaps at the top of the walls where they stopped short of the ceilings, disheveled early morning heads appearing and immediately vanishing. It's very, very strange. The assistants, again, very ghostly. They're kind of described like robots by Kay. After the assistant, Jeremiah, tries to find Kay at Olga's house, Kay sees him and Kay thinks, quote, he did not appear to be the assistant. He looked older, wearier, more wrinkled and yet fatter in the face. Also, his walk was quite different from the nimble, almost electric jointed walk of the assistants. It was slow with a slight limp, genteelly infirm." I think if the word robotic was popular at the time, he may have used that word. So these strange robotic assistants seem to carry the weight of Kay's emotions in their visual appearance. They are like doppelgangers of K, reflecting his soul maybe. After he realises that Jeremiah has come between him and Frieda, he calls him a, quote, lump of flesh that at times gave the impression it was not properly alive. Now, just a few ideas. I'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on that second half of the novel. I want to mention a bit about Franz Kafka. He was born in Prague in 1883 and he was sent to a German language school, went to German university. He received a doctorate in law when he was in his early 20s. Then he worked for most of his life as a respected official of a state insurance company, first under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then under the new Republic of Czechoslovakia. Literature of which he said that he, quote, consisted, had to be pursued on the side. His emotional life was dominated by his relationships with his father, a man of overbearing character, and with a series of women. Felice Bauer from Berlin, to whom he was twice engaged, his Czech translator, Milena Yeshenka Polak, to whom he became attached in 1920, and Dora Diamant, a young Jewish woman from Poland in whom he found a devoted companion during the last years of his life. Meanwhile, his writing had taken a new turn in 1917 with the outbreak of the tubercular illness from which he was to die at 40. Only a small number of Kafka stories were published during his lifetime. Interestingly, he asked his friend Max Brod to see that all the writings he left should be destroyed. Broad felt unable to comply and undertook their publication, instead beginning with the three unfinished novels, including this novel, The Castle. According to Wikipedia, he's widely regarded as one of the major figures of 20th century literature. His work fuses elements of realism and the fantastic, and we certainly see elements of the fantastic in The Castle, such as that strange isha Count's Arms, but not at the level of a work like Metamorphosis. The article goes on, quote, In typical features, isolated protagonists facing bizarre surrealistic predicaments and incomprehensible socio-bureaucratic powers is being interpreted as exploring themes of alienation, existential anxiety, guilt and absurdity. The term Kafkaesque has entered English to describe the situations like those found in his writings. Thank you very much Franz Kafka for the castle. I'd like to talk a little bit now about December's book Vagabonds by Hao Ying Fang, 594 pages if you're reading alongside I'll be reading up to page 332 that's the chapter entitled medal now why did I choose this book I chose it because I was keen to find some writing in translation particularly sci-fi this cropped up in a recommended reads website so I snapped it up it also won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2021. So it's quite a modern novel. And also it's by Hao Yingfang, a Chinese lady. the only thing I know about her is that she is Chinese, as I say, and she has a PhD in economics. The blurb says she works currently as a macroeconomics researcher at the China Development Research Foundation in Beijing. I'm gonna read the first page and give you my initial impressions. Prologue. Maybe I'll just read the prologue. Once, a group of children was born on one world and grew up on another. The world they were born into was a tower of rigid rules. The world they grew up on was a garden of rambling disorder. One was a magnificent, austere blueprint, the other was a wild bacchanalia. The two worlds shaped the children's lives, one after the other, without seeking their consent, without consideration for their feelings like two links in the chain of fate, sweeping them up in cold, irresistible tides. What had been put together in the tower was smashed to bits in the garden. What had been forgotten in drunken revelry were still memorialised in the blueprint. Those who lived only in the tower never suffered the loss of faith. Those who lived only for the pursuit of pleasure had no vision to strive for. Only those who had wandered through both worlds could experience that particular stormy night in which distant mirages faded away and countless strange flowers blossomed in the wasteland. As a result of their experience, they suffered in silence and became the target of every criticism. Who these children were and how they came to live such lives are questions that could be fully answered only with the help of 200 years of complicated history. Even the children themselves couldn't offer a lucid explanation. They were perhaps among the youngest in the millennia long history of the exiled. Before they even understood what fate was, They had been tossed into its vortex while still ignorant of the existence of other worlds. Another world had snatched them away. Their exile began at home and they had no vote in history's direction. Our story begins at the moment when the children were returning home. The body's journey was coming to an end but the heart's exile was only about to begin. This is the tale of the fall of the last utopia. The ship. The ship was about to dock time to turn out the lights. The ship swayed in space like a drop of water gently flowing into the arc-shaped port. The ship was very old and glowed dimly like a badge that had been polished by time until the sharp angles and edges had worn away. Against the darkness of space the ship seemed minuscule and the vacuum accentuated its loneliness. The ship, the sun and Mars formed a straight line with the sun at the far end, Mars close at hand and in the middle the ship whose course was straight as a sword, its edge fading into obscurity. Surrounded by darkness, the silvery drop of water approached the shore very much alone. This was May Earth, the only link between Earth and Mars. Very interesting. So we've got Mars and Earth coming together. Earth seems very like the Western world, I guess. Mars seems more communist, I'd say. And maybe uh, the Earth is more democratic. We've got, it describes, Earth is described as bacchanalic. Where was it? One was a magnificent, austere blueprint, Mars. The other was a wild bacchanalia. One has, Mars has rigid rules and Earth has rambling disorder. It's gonna be very interesting. Uh, I'm wondering whether the author, Hao Yang, Ying Fang, is gonna be very political with this idea of Mars maybe being a proto-China and Earth maybe being a, a, a proto-Western world or a, a, a type of Western democratic world. The Guardian says, a fascinating examination of two very different possible futures. Locus says, graceful and ambitious. And The Times says, a long, satisfying meditation on political and creative freedom. I am very excited about reading this book. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook. At yahoo.com and if you want to recommend a future book to read together do let me know also if you enjoyed this please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app thank you very much i look forward to discussing the first half of how yang fang's vagabonds translated by ken liu at the next episode of bookshook on the second friday of december that's the 30th see you then <music>